It is as a body of Christ, Heritage Baptist Church, a great encouragement to be celebrating 50 years of what God's done in our midst and to hear the testimony of many who have been touched and blessed. And so many will not get to speak who have experienced God's kindness and grace in this body. And this morning to look around and to see these pews full of folks or chairs. And we thank the Lord for that. But what will the next 50 years of this congregation hold? That's the question of which we've taken up out of the book of Revelation. And indeed, that is for us a consideration that we ought to consider because a church is not anything other than the gathered individuals in it, isn't it? And so what you and I believe together is what this church will accomplish in the future. Those who sat on the pews or the cha- in the chairs of this church, you can tell uh, pews are a thing stuck in my mind. That's from years past. <laughs> so, so for you and for me, it's something real important. We can benefit. Now, let me say something about the book of Revelation. As soon as you hear that book, the first thing most of us think is that's what happens at the end, isn't it? But note in this particular book, it was written to a group of people, seven churches, who like you and I were living out their context of Christianity in their culture moment. They were living for Christ and experiencing Christ where they lived in that day. And it was to those seven churches that Christ gave this revelation to John to give to those churches. All seven of them, it would appear, got a copy. And so not only did they read about what they experienced and what God said of them, or Christ said of them, but also what He said of the other churches. So with with me this morning, I want you to consider some things. Many of you, Maybe at one point in your life, I remembered as a young man, I was going to play football as a ninth grader. Anybody ever tried out for the football team in high school? Do you remember what occurred right before anybody got to practice? You had to take this thing called a physical. All of those young men lined up in that locker room and There was a doctor sitting in the office and you had to go one by one and see if you were even able to play. He was going to check you. Now many of you here, maybe you didn't play football, but you've experienced this thing because you've chosen to drive a truck and they want to know, the state does, if you're even fit for that. So every year you go up to the doctor, he brings you back, he checks to see if you can see if your heart's beating correctly, and if things are generally in order. What they don't want is you behind the wheel of an 80,000-pound vehicle with a family coming the opposite way, and all of a sudden something occurs and you kill the whole family. So they want to try to prevent everything they can. But there's some examinations that I've heard about. I've never experienced one. It's called an executive physical. That might be what they give one of you if you were the CEO of a big company. They want to make certain you're fit for the position. They want to hire you, pay you all that money, and then all of a sudden you fall over dead. So they're very thorough. A physical. Have you ever had one? Well, these seven churches in the book of Revelation got a physical. It was a thorough physical. You see, in a physical, you go in and the doctor checks you and following that you get the results, your blood pressure is too high. I looked on the chart and your weight is 
far more than what it ought to be for your height. All of these kinds of things we hear. Cholesterol is too high. Or it could be for you that you had a clean bill of health. And that was a great encouragement and comfort. And when you got home, your wife said, well, what did it look like? She's concerned because she wants to make certain that the life insurance policy is all paid up just in case, right? No, beyond that, she's concerned about you. So we know that this is a part of our life and we've experienced it and we think about it. And the doctor will say something like this. Here's what we found. Here's the consequences of your choices. I remember Dr. Matthews looking at me one time and my wife saying, well, you know, he don't like to take pills. He said, well, here's the deal. If you're coming to me, you're going to take what I give you or else go find somebody else. He was pretty blind. So whatever they find, they tell you what will occur if you don't take the remedy. Here's the remedy and here's the benefit of the remedy. Just what Christ did to the churches. Here's what I found. Here's the consequence. Here's the remedy. And here's the benefit. And so every church down through the ages have benefited from these seven letters when they take them and are honest with themselves and look into these things and say, Is that me? Is that me? And so this morning as we look at this, we're going to get to see in two particular churches what Christ said of them. Now, now, if you're like me, you always are asking, is this accurate? I, just recently, I had a sleep test. I thought that thing was just another way to sell medical devices. You know, that's what that's about. Everybody in the world now has sleep apnea, and they want to sell sleep machines. So my wife kept on me and on me about that, and she was right. I wasn't breathing at night. And so when I went to the doctor and she looked at me and she said, you ain't breathing at night. I had an option. Die early, of which I might do yet, but I'm 60, so it won't be too early. But still, I had this to think about. Is this lady accurate or is she just trying to sell machines? That's a good question and it's right to ask. Is she qualified to perform the test she performed? Did the technician even read it correctly? And why in the world would I go through all of this trouble? Answering all of those questions brought me to this conclusion. Where are the CPAC? <laughs> but you ought to ask those questions and so should the churches who've been given this examination. And so you and I asked the question this morning, is what is said about these churches accurate? Well, let's ask that question. Who always, right? If you're going to go have surgery, you want to know that the doctor's qualified to give you surgery. So what you're going to do is you're going to check into their history to see if they performed this before and to see if they have a thousand previous surgeries that were successful. It puts you at ease that this doctor knows exactly what he or she is doing. You have comfort. Well, what about these churches? Will we note in the Bible that it was Christ Himself who had investigated these churches and noticed what the Scripture says about Him so that we will have no reservation 
about what he says. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the Bible's clear about it, that Christ himself knows exactly what's going on in the life of his churches. He's so involved, the Bible says, that he's described in the book of Revelation as a Savior with eyes that are like a flame of fire. Now, what was that about? Penetrating. The gaze of Christ in the church is a penetrating gaze. There's nothing that escapes His view according to the Scripture. And it is that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So we have in chapter 1 this very reality so that the churches could take great confidence. This wasn't the opinion of some man. This was the accurate interpretation of Christ himself about his churches. Not only is he accurate, but the Bible says he's qualified. Described in Revelation chapter 1 as holding the seven stars in his hand. What could qualify a man more to understand the nature and the situation in the church rather than the one who holds in his hand these seven stars described as the seven angels of the churches. Not only was he that, but walking in the midst of the candlesticks, the light that the church is in the world, he's involved in such a way, intricately involved. You see, your doctor who gives you a physical doesn't follow you around and watch what you eat and knock on your door as you pull through McDonald's and order that quarter pounder and say, no, no. But the Bible describes Christ in such a way that His qualification is in this. He walks in the churches and among them. And so we can take take great confidence in that as well as this reality, knowing that when He says something about our situation. He's certainly qualified to do so. Not only is he that, he's a faithful witness. The firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. So what he tells me, he has no other reason than to tell me the truth. We always have that in our mind, don't we? If your friend comes to you and tells you something about you or says something about a situation you're in, the question always comes, is does he or she have my best interest at all? That's a fair question. But we know as we understand the description of Christ in the Bible as a faithful witness, indeed, as the author and finisher of our faith, the firstborn of the dead, that He's qualified to do what He's done here with the seven churches. And we ask the question, why? Why would He even take the time? Why? Doesn't he have more important things to do than to watch these little churches? What about Rome and what about these other nations of the world who are conducting affairs and doing life? Aren't those things more important? These little churches scattered in these little places with little influence it appears, gathered up in homes, persecuted, and by the world despised. Why would he take such a concern? Note this. The Bible says of these seven churches and the people in them that Christ says this of them. He loves them. And he has freed them from their sins by his blood. 
Why this morning is this gathering so important? Why for the next 50 years ought we chart our course according to these churches and what they learn? Because Christ loves you, brother and sister. Why is the church of God scattered across the world the most important thing and the priority in His concern? Because He loves that group of people. They're the ones He paid their sin debt, you see. And it's described in Scripture in Colossians 1 in order that we might know the intimacy of Christ and His people, that He's the head of His body, the church. You and I are described as the body of Christ. There's nothing to you more intimate than your body. You separate your head from your body, you're done. You might get a kidney transplant, but you're not getting a head transplant. Those things go together. They're inseparable. Your head and your body's inseparable. Your head's vital to the success of your body. It can do nothing without the head. But the body's intimately connected. And so the description of Scripture is this very reality. So as we ask the question, why? Why would he spend such time? Why would he do what he's done? Why would he say these things? He has this plan for that group. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. It's that group of people to whom he writes. He can't wait to the day he gathers up his bride. Like Aiden that sits here in two weeks, he's going to watch his beautiful bride walk down the aisle. So Christ longs for the day that he gathers up all of his redeemed and brings them to himself. So much concerned is he that he gives this understanding to us of these seven churches and their condition so that we might look at ourselves and say, what am I like? Because one day, brother and sister, he's gathering up his bride. That's you and me. And so because of that concern, he's willing to give the churches the necessary physical that's critical in their existence. The Bible says this, it's important. The commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. Reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life. Listen, it's not a bad thing to get a physical from Christ. It's a good thing. And as a church, it's a great thing. We ought to be willing, not only willing, but delight in that reality. So note first in Revelation 2 what we can learn from this church. And in your life, you ask this question, what are your priorities? What as a church would you say as you look around and say, what's the priority of Heritage Baptist Church? And we can ask that more in particular as individually, what, your, what is your priority personally? You're apt to lie to yourself about it, but you ask somebody beside you, especially your spouse, and they might help you with that. Your friend or another. When you note in Revelation 2, you'll see that this church is doing a lot of good things. Many Many good things. You'll note that not only were they faithful with the doctrines and the teachings of the Scripture, careful to determine if those who were preaching them were preaching it correctly. They were laboring and toiling. They were not being lazy in that responsibility. The Bible says all of this about that church. So we would see this church as doctrinally sound, discerning, and faithful. 
They hated the deeds of those who were teaching others to live immoral and ungodly lives. You see, we have churches today, not only in our own community, but across the world, who are synagogues of Satan, according to the Scripture. But this church was not called that. They were faithful in many ways. But I want you to note, brother and sister, there's something important for us to learn here. Because as especially Reformed Baptists, over the years I've appreciated deeply the way in which they love doctrine. And they love to order the church and do it right. And they see value in biblical church discipline and living that out as a body. And to carefully consider those who preach and to be certain they teach the Scripture. So what's my temptation often in this life? It's to get my priorities all mixed up. You see, that's not the necessarily, it's important and critical indeed, but what Christ brings out with the church at Ephesus, who there's much written about Ephesians. Acts 19, 1 and 2 Timothy, they had the benefit of Paul being the founding pastor. They had Peter there, and some say John himself ministered there. So indeed, that church was blessed. But what occurred in the midst of all the things of which they struggled with? They had leaders in the midst of their congregation which rose up and carried people after themselves. They watched and heard that Nero took Christians, turned them upside down and burned them for lights in his garden. They heard of those who were gathered up in a bag and eaten in the middle of the Colosseum. This is the context, brothers and sisters. And surely their excuse might be, Lord, we're laboring for your cause and we're making certain. He said, yes, but you've lost the thing that's a priority. I want you to know that this priority in the Scripture is clear and God will not in any way negotiate on this thing. No way. The Bible says faith which worketh through love will always be the case. And though faith, hope, and love abide, the greatest of these is love. And when God gathered up His children out of Egypt and He carried them through the desert, He said this about the importance of remembering the thing that was most vital. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This was non-negotiable. All of the other things that came with it, this was the non-negotiable in it all. You see, it was that God sought men to worship Him, who loved Him. And so it is, as the lawyer tried to trick Christ, it was made clear in the day of Christ's ministry what was most important. What must I do to inherit eternal life, said the lawyer, trying to trick Him. Jesus said, what does the law say? What does it say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Yes, exactly, Christ said. The whole law and the prophets are summed up in these two statements. And you say, but I want to be faithful with doctrine. I want to be faithful and diligent. I want to knock on doors. I want to be a good Sunday school teacher. Yes, be all of those things, brother and sister. Be them. But what we learn from the Ephesian church is this. 
we can't be those things and leave out the most important thing. Because what's the opposite of loving God with all of our heart? It's this, and this is what you don't want. Nor, it's not what I want. It's not what our church wants. Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. While their hearts are far from me, the Bible says. You see it in the Williams translation of this particular passage. He uses this word, which I thought was interesting. He said, remember the heights of which you have fallen. The ESV uses the word abandon. So you see that the context of this is not that we give the Ephesians a pass because they're doing some things right. They forgot their priority and left the most important thing off. Now you might ask me, what does that mean, preacher? What does that mean to love here? Does that mean love our brothers? Or does that mean love Christ? How do you separate that? How do you separate that? And what does love mean anyway? It's a mystery, isn't it? Certainly it's a mystery in many ways, but there's one thing for certain. When you see it, you know it. And when you feel it, you know it. It's something that doesn't let leave you unmoved or untouched. It's a reality. It's an experience you don't forget when you fell in love with your wife or you fell in love with your husband. When you saw your kid for the first time and held them in their arms, it was going to cost you a lot of money to raise that child, but there was something gripped by your heart. It's called love. It's what the Bible speaks about. When a group of people in John chapter 6 said of Jesus, we want to do the works of God. We want to do something for you, Lord. This is what he says. This is the work of God. Believe in the one who he sent in Christ. You fall in love with him. That's the point of the scripture. In what way have they ceased to love? You see, you and I can know clearly that these men have been taken advantage of by others. What happens when you get taken advantage of? You grow skeptical. What is it when you do a jail ministry? What can I promise you that will happen? Nine out of ten folks will disappoint you. So if you go without the understanding and the reality of things that go on in the hearts of men, you will be left empty. They became skeptical of other people. I'm certain of that frustrated, reserved, and hurt. So they were always reserved, maybe. What about with Christ distracted, Martha-like rather than Mary-like? Can that not be us when we're doing everything for the church but not enjoying the one who's the author and finisher of the faith of the church? Listen, brothers and sisters, when our hearts cease to be gripped with the, the Christ who by His sacrifice saved us from our sins, when the beauty of our Savior becomes less and less visible, when cataracted by the struggles in this life, we become clanging cymbals and lifeless gongs. Our prayer time has no life. We don't hope for when we gather up in church to see a picture again vivid in our heart of our sacrificed Savior who died in our place to save us. Oh, that you and I as a body would long for this 
never to leave our first love. You might have some doctrinal issue down the chain that's not exactly right. That's okay. If you leave your love for Christ and abandon it. If you become distracted. If we as a church lose that peace. The warning is clear. Our candlestick will be removed. Other things can be, we'll sit around and say, but we had our doctrine right. But we were doing work for God. But did you delight in Him? Was your heart gripped by Him? Could you wait to see Him in your place of prayer? Were you hopeful and prayerful when you gathered up with your brothers and sisters that He would show up in a way that made Him inward in you, visible and gripped by Him? Can you really sing Amazing Grace with the amazing part in it? Oh, brothers. This is what He died for you for. Not so that you could be dead doctrinally. So that you could be alive inwardly. And that you could enjoy Him on this side of heaven and long for the day when free from sin you see Him in all of His beauty. If our Christianity has become less than that, repent. Repent. So Peter captures this. I love this verse and hear these words. This kind of captures this particular portion of the Scripture. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not have seen Him, you believe in Him. And, re and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Is that us? Does that describe us? Oh, I hope so. If not, the Bible simply says, <clears throat> repent, turn, see. See your coldness in your heart. Repent. You see, this is not merely in the Ephesian church some struggle with coming to pray on a Wednesday night every once in a while. This is something that gripped them as a people. And you well know in your own heart right now, as the doctor looks at you, which is Christ, and says of you, that's you. As the Spirit of God works in you and says, that's you. Don't run from it. Please don't run. Run to Him. All He wants to hear is this, I'm sorry. And He'll restore you, brothers and sisters. He'll grab you around and love you up. And the sweetness of His sacrifice will be the sweetness of your heart. And the favor of His eyes will be the thing you long for. That's the promise. Let's quickly move into the next church, which can be so characteristic of us. Buildings and budgets. We like them. Nice buildings. Healthy budgets. This verse teaches us to pursue poverty. How many of you want to be poor? I guarantee you in high school you ask the seniors who wants to be poor in here and nobody's going to raise their hand. Rightly so. But we do know this about wealth. It's more dangerous than a rattlesnake. Now I know some of you women wouldn't touch a gardener's, garter snake much less a rattlesnake. You see one this long and this big and we tell you it's not poison and you say what? I don't care, I'm running the other way. But I'm telling you, this mindset is more dangerous than any venomous snake 
or animal God's creating. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Notice, it's not a high wall. It's only a high wall in his own imagination. It's not a strong city. It's only a strong city in his mind. Your success or your wealth or that of our church. And I must say, God's blessed this church in many ways. We worship in a beautiful, fine facility. We turn the air on and the heat on, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. We're free from debt and have money in the bank. If by any means we believe that all of those things say that God's blessing us, we thank God for it. But those are not the things that mean most to any church. What about this church? They were neither cold nor hot. That's kind of, that's kind of an odd statement, isn't it? A cold, refreshing drink of water is nice. A hot cup of coffee is good. Now you who use ice in your coffee, you're messed up. All right? <laughs> but in their day, this thing of lukewarmness was something that was tepid or nasty. I don't like lukewarm coffee. My wife would say this about my dad. Now when you're your dad, he always wants it warmed up. He'll say of his food, Kim, will you put that in the microwave for 30 seconds? Because he wants it hot, not just warm. And so we understand the importance of that. We see what Christ is getting at, but I want you to note what he says here. He's saying this about them, but what are they saying about themselves? They did a self-examination, kind of like I do when I'm sick, like now. My wife says, you'll cough for three weeks before you go to the doctor. I say, yeah, but I'm going to be better the next day. <clears throat> she just shakes her head. So what did the Laodiceans say about themselves? Here's what they said. We're rich. We're prosperous. You know, that in and of itself probably was true. And to that point, there's not complete negativity. But boy, these next words. Friend, these next words. I have need of nothing. No. We have need of everything. That's the point. As I look across this congregation, I can say this about it. You're rich. You know, some of you here don't think you are. But compared against the world, you're in the top 2% of the wealth of all the world. Every one of you. You're rich. Some of you are really rich. And I look at myself and I say, you know, that's us. Is it that he condemns riches? Not at all. Not at all. He condemns what they will do to you. They will destroy you if you don't think rightly about them. What he's condemning is a mindset. Listen to me. The tools given to Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 was to tear down the mindsets that had developed in the minds of men and women to destroy those things that raised themselves up against the knowledge of God 
And this can be a prime and prominent one. Why is it that we ought to pursue poverty? Because riches will destroy us. The view of it. It's not money that's the root of all evil. What is it? It's the love of it. You see, it's not just wealthy people that are destroyed by money. Many, many, many people that don't have money are destroyed by money. They love it. They're gripped by it and pursue it. It's not merely churches that have buildings and budgets, but those that don't that are gripped by it. But the Laodicean church obviously saw themselves in this light. The danger is a self-examination that doesn't reveal the reality. What could color our view of our own church's situation? It could be what Christ warned the children of Israel about. As long as you're going through the desert, every morning you've got to go out and get what? Manna. You've got to go get the manna every morning. Where's it coming from? It's coming from heaven. You well know you didn't do anything for it. You know you didn't. You go out every morning and you get it. He said, this is the danger, not that you walk through the desert and wait for the manna. But when you gather up in that land and you go in houses you did not build and you enjoy gardens you didn't plant and you enjoy wealth and prosperity and you'll grow ease in your life, what will happen? You'll not depend on me. You'll be self-sufficient. You'll say, you can't pray this prayer. Lord, give me this day my daily bread. Why? Why can you not pray such a prayer as this? You've got a cupboard full of food. Your refrigerator runs over with foods. What's your thought about tomorrow? If God doesn't provide today, guess what? i got plenty for tomorrow. Some of you have gathered up in case something occurs for months in the future. There's nothing wrong with any of this. It's the mindset, brother and sister. It's the way you think about these things. That's what God was getting at. It was the man in Luke 12 who'd been abundantly blessed as a farmer. And he said, wow, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. I've got a bunch of stuff. I'm going to gather it up. I don't have need of anything. Oh, oh. You see, they could have been just as blessed in the land of Israel, in the land that was flowing with milk and honey in the land of Canaan with God, with all the stuff that God provided as they could have been in the desert, the mindset was different. It was God that provides everything. You see, this church at Laodicea could well have enjoyed all the blessings of God had they made this thing. God's blessed us with wealth. We've been a prosperous people. We have need of everything. So what is it this morning that God's commanding us in this passage of Scripture, first to realize, brothers and sisters, you see there, this man in the Bible is in the greatest place of desperation. You see, you and I would think it to be a fool, and certainly a fool, according to the Scripture, is in a place of danger. But the Bible says, you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for that man. You see, what is the most dangerous for you and I is the way we view things in our own wisdom. The Bible clearly indicates only a fool trusts in his heart. So if I look at my situation and I measure it any other way than what the Bible's given me to measure it, 
what God has called me to. I'm certain to misdiagnose my situation. You know, church, he's given us his word and his spirit to diagnose our own personal situations carefully. And so we have to realize wherein we have faltered or failed. If there is in you, and I'm certain there are, as I look around this room, there is in me and all of us this certain temptation to trust, whether it be our own government, our financial position, the tanks and planes that our government owns, and those things are right and good to defend the nation. You and I are left to God alone. We have need of everything. And when you come to a place where you think you don't need something from God, you're entirely wrong. When like the rich young ruler, you're faced with this reality, you want eternal life. But when he looks at you and says, well, go sell all that you have. What? How can I do such a thing? I need that. You do? You do? As a church, what do we need? We need our head, right? Pouring his life into the body. So it is for us to be mindful of the Bible's clear instruction. Be slow to speak and quick to what? Listen. Listen to what Christ says. You see, this is not a conspiracy theory. Those are going around the world all the place right now, right? You need real gold. You hear it all the time on the radio, right? money in your pocket ain't worth anything, they say. They're right. So what you oughtn't to trust it, right? They say, buy this gold. That way when everything goes kaput, you'll have gold. Well, you can't eat it or drink it. But it could come in handy. That's up to you. But the point is this. What Christ says about buying gold is not a conspiracy theory. He was serious. Now, if you buy the gold of the world, it can let you down. So what does he mean here? Do you notice the way in which he communicates the cultural context of which they found themselves? That's the way Christ spoke to them. You buy from me gold refined in the fire. What did he mean? What's the currency of heaven? What is the currency of heaven? What is it that, our, that those who went before us who stand as witnesses to our race what was it that they were commended by? Faith. Right. And it was Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 that said, your faith which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to the praise and the glory and the honor when Christ appeared. Your faith, brothers and sisters, is the currency of heaven. What is it that you ought to go and beg Christ for? Faith. To trust. You see it? It's faith that causes you to look away from the things the world offers and all the rewards that it can give you. And then if you gather it all up and put it in a bag and build fences for it and put it in every bank across the world and you've gathered it all and you've totaled it up. Jesus says, if you get it all, what have you got? You lose your soul. Right? You've got to consent that. You need to know now about that. We as a church need to know. What if this church passes with a lot of money in the bank? So what? You know, nobody cares about how much money you and I have. They care about how much we give. You see, the people around us aren't enamored with all of the money in reality. 
They care what you do for others with it. You see, that's why God's given it and entrusted it to you, brothers and sisters. And as a church for us, this is a reality. So Christ says, not only realize your condition, but buy from me these things. You buy these things. How will we buy these things? Well, you, in your own life, giving up your own wisdom, that's hard to do. You think that's easy. It's not easy. It's not easy. You look around you, people struggle desperately with living this life according to their own wisdom. They look and they say, yes, but I know how this works. Do you? Do you? I know what God said, but I know how this works. What are you going to do? Trust in your own heart? The Bible says don't. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. And He'll direct your path. Be not wise in your own eyes. But fear the Lord and depart from evil. I know money's destroyed everybody and success has been a ruin of many. And I know that in 1 Timothy 6, the Bible says, even those in Ephesus who had pursued wealth had taken a sword and shoved it through their own heart. But I can do it and get away with it. Really? Really? Or as a church, we can cherish this thing and still somehow be faithful for the kingdom. No, we can't. And no, you and I can't. Please, spend time giving up your own wisdom and gathering up His. Spend time trusting not what you see, but what He says. These things are critical. If you and I will find ourselves buying the things that are everlasting, how much better is it to get wisdom than gold, to get understanding to be chosen rather than silver, And if these verses aren't gripping your heart and if you don't think about them often, I can promise what your default mode is. There's no question about it. Everybody has a default mode. And it's to operate like the fallen Adam that's in you. And it's to attach yourself to the things of this world. Not only is it the default mode of you and I as individuals, but as churches together. If we can't glory in the way in which we preach the gospel and the Christ which we preach and placard and give to the world, then we'll glory in the things that we have. It's the way it works. You said, that's not going to be me. It's going to be you. If you and I don't find ourselves gathering up these truths from the Scripture, more precious are they than gold or silver. They are indeed more precious. They change the way you think. They change what you long for. They empty you so you can be filled They enable you to glory in Christ alone. One day your cataract eyes will see with all fullness the beauty of His glory. That, friend, is yours on this side of heaven as you pursue it. There's no reason for you to wait till heaven to enjoy the beautiful Savior. Let me move on quickly. The Bible says not only should you buy gold from Christ, but garments. Why? You're naked. Has anybody told you you're naked? Haven't you ever had a dream? I, I used to have them all the time that I was running around my underwear and everybody at school was watching me. It was horrifying. It was horrifying. I was trying to find somewhere to hide. Somewhere I... Everybody looking. Whoop. You walked in here this morning, you and I did, without a thought of who sees us naked. You're careful in your own home. Some of you not even let your spouse see you naked. You don't want them to see your belly or something, right? 
But here's the thing. The one that we ought to, above all others, is God. But here's the problem. You go gather up your fig leaves. You can't hide your nakedness. You can't hide your nakedness. What you do, He knows. He sees you everywhere you are, never thought you had. He knows what your passions are. He knows whatever church is about. We gather our fig leaves. We think we're hiding from somebody. We get behind a tree. You're not hiding from him. <laughs> you see, here's the thing. He's not coming to call out your neck and it's merely just to embarrass you or shame you. He wants to give you a garment to cover you up. That's what he wants to do. He wants to give you the garment of Christ's righteousness and cover you up. He doesn't want you to run around trying to gather up your own fig leaves and patch on these things about how wealthy you are and how successful you are. That how your church does this or that and how many buildings you have. That's not the point. The point is he wants you to talk about that white garment he gave you for the righteousness of Christ. Why are you going to heaven? Christ's sake. You look under this garment, you're going to see some nasty nakedness. Right? That's the truth of it. And when you know that of yourself, and when you're not afraid to look at yourself in reality, when that examination becomes a reality, then you glory in that garment. When you know how sinful you are down to the very center of your being. When as a church we know we glory in the fact there's nothing in us good, not in our flesh at all. We're not afraid to say it. We own it. It's what God said of us. It's what Christ said of us. He didn't leave us that way He came to purchase for us this garment that I could wear every single day, every moment of my life. I can put on His righteousness and walk in this world of ungodliness of which I'm a part inward, but which He's made me different in every way. Would it, brothers and sisters, that we would long as a church and as individuals to be careful to always put on this garment? We're not here discuss, discussing the historicity of Christ or the Gospels. We're here to glory in His person and His being and to gather up His garment and to put it on. Oh, and what a beautiful statement. It's said of uh, Laodicea, they, they were a place that made medicine. Now, we know that only China does that, right? <laughs> We're giving all that up. They put this salve on their eyes so they could see. Christ used that illustration. You want to see him now? No, it's good. I'll just wait. You'll wait? Is that your attitude? Is that your thought? As a church, is that what we think? I'll just wait. I'll do what I want here and then when heaven gets here, I'll enjoy him. That's not the thing, brothers and sisters. You see, as a body, as a church, what we have to give to the world is I said they can see Christ and his beauty. What you have here and now, what's been given you and purchased by him at Calvary is the freedom to see him in his beauty, beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what we have. We've been challenged to buy the salve with what? A broken heart. Don't come with money. It's of no value. Don't come with your good deeds. What 
with your broken heart. He'll put salve on your eyes and you can see Him in all of His glory. We can ask this question in closing. Why is it that He says such things about these churches? Isn't this embarrassing? It was the disciples who got a little offended when He said of the Pharisees that they were whitewashed tombs. Brothers, you ought to want what Christ says about you just like it is. Right? You want your doctor looking at you and eyes? You're fine when you're dying with cancer. Tell me the reality. Then I can make preparation. Christ disciplines us because He loves us. He loves us. That's what He's motivated by. And think of this thought. When you take up these things and you make them a part of your life, you find in yourself, you, you that have an ear to hear, let Him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You repent. The Bible says, I stand at the That beautiful picture is the Bible. I stand at the door and knock. He could tear the door down. He could tear the building down. But I stand at the door and knock. A demonstration of meekness in all of its glory. What does he want to do? Come in and upbraid you? No. He wants to come in and enjoy a meal with you. He wants to sup with you and you with him. He wants you to enjoy the feast that he's prepared for you. What Psalm 23 said, right in the midst of your enemies, he'll prepare a table for you. This is what Christ wants with his people. This is what he wants for his church, of which you're a part. Why would you miss it, friend? Why would you miss it? It would be like the choice of sitting at Bo's table with one of those fine meals or going to eat a burger at McDonald's. What do you want? He's offered you and I this privilege. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. You think that's a lie? You think he really doesn't mean this? When you look at this church and when we started out with it, would you think that these words would be offered at the end? Goodness. They were all together. Misfits. But listen at the invitation. So why would it not be for us? Do you want to enjoy him? You don't have to wait till heaven. Oh, heaven's awaiting us. And it'll be far greater than anything we experience. We know that. But here you can have much, much more than what you presently know. Pursuing. As a church, might that be our goal for the next 50 years? Might we have all of them that we can and enjoy supper with Him often? Might we enjoy the things He prepares? Would you with me pray as we pursue this great Savior? Please, I beg you. Don't leave this world and without pursuing the poverty that produces riches beyond measure. Father, we love you. But our love for you is not anything like your love for us. Our love is fickle. It fades. It comes. It goes. We can't imagine that you want to have supper with us. You want to sit down at our table. You want to be our guest. Lord, what a thought. As a church, help us, Lord, to put our priorities right and carefully consider the value of poverty and seeing ourselves rightly and how rich that makes us in this life. Oh, Lord, bless your people and bless this work for the next 50 years for your glory. In Christ we pray. Amen.